You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I'm your host, Kathy Biasse, and I am a holistic nutritionist and a professional cancer coach. On today's show, we are exploring the magical process of fermentation with our guest, Holly Howe. Humans have been fermenting foods as a means of preservation for thousands of years, but in recent years, Fermenting foods has had a surge in popularity, mainly due to their health benefits and our growing understanding of their impact on our microbiome. Holly is a fermentation educator and founder of Makesourcrout.com, a popular resource for online fermentation, classes, recipes, and articles with over 90,000 monthly visitors. A former grade school teacher, She helps students learn how to safely transform everyday vegetables into healthy and delicious fermented foods. We talk all about fermenting today, as mentioned right at the onset here. Why ferment? What is fermenting? What is going on when we're fermenting? How do we, as beginners, start to ferment and their impact on our overall health? Great show. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a few minutes to talk with Holly Howe. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back to the program, everybody. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC on all locations, the perfect place to find out more about today's guests, our show, anything you need to know about us, and... If you have topics that you'd like us to cover, uh, guests that you think would be really perfect for the show, this is the place to to hit us up. Holly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, as we were talking about off air, I have through my nutrition career, I've had a lot of people ask about the process of fermentation, the benefits of fermentation. Um, You obviously have been doing this for quite a while, but I do think the knowledge about the health benefits of fermented foods is starting to really um, take a hold in the health space. How did you get into, into the practice of fermenting and the passion for it? Um, I have always been interested in what I can do to improve my health, especially through the power of food. And about 20 plus years ago, I came across a book called Nourishing Traditions. Mm -hmm. 
And it was based on the work of a dentist, Weston A. Price. And he traveled the world in the 20s and 30s because he was curious. He was starting to notice in his practice that people were needing braces. They didn't have room for all their teeth. There was more dental caries than he had seen previously. And he was curious if there's people out in the world who still had perfect teeth. And if they had perfect teeth, what was her diet like and how did it impact that? So what really intrigued me about his work was he was looking for the people with the perfect health that didn't get um, the tuberculosis at the time, et cetera. And then he was looking at what they were eating and how they prepared it, which is different than a lot of diets today where people look at the science and go, okay, this is the type of diet we need to have. Let's go try this diet. He, He actually found people and looked at their diet. And he found only 14 groups traveling around that had perfect health. At this time, industrial food was starting, and we were seeing processed oils and sugars and canned foods. And so he could see in these isolated communities how these foods impacted their health and their dental health. And what he found looking at these 14 groups was um, that they all consumed some type of fermented food. There were other components to their diet, but the one that popped out at me was the fermented foods. And so I decided to start uh, consuming fermented foods. This was over 20 years ago. And so there weren't fermented foods on their shelves. There was no YouTube channel to teach us how to make fermented foods. There were just the Nourishing Tradition book and one other book that taught how to ferment foods. So I was able to find some uh, Bubby's sauerkraut um, Mm -hmm. on the shelf at my health food store and started consuming that with my young family. And soon it got expensive to be buying uh, jars and jars of sauerkraut. So I decided to learn how to make my own and uh, experimented and played around with it over the years and brought me to the point where I am today and eating a variety of fermented foods and um, liking how it's helping me with my health. So that's what got me started on it was just this uh, book and this dentist back 20 years ago that I came across. Well, how do you feel it's impacted your health? Um, I, you know, I've always been healthy. So it wasn't like, you know, a lot of people come to their health passion and their teaching through some type of health crisis. Uh I did not. I just was curious. I've always grown up on good, healthy food and wanted to maintain that health. And I did notice once I started including fermented foods in my diet that I did have better digestion and better health. And one time when traveling down to visit family, I didn't want to pack the fermented foods, didn't want to pack the sauerkraut, thought I'd keep my life simple. And I did notice a dramatic slowdown in digestion and less energy and more of the bloating. So I I knew when I took the fermented foods out of my diet that they were providing the benefit that I didn't notice because it was just a slow, gradual improvement in health. Mm. Now, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about the gut microbiome and the microbiome in general all over the body. And, you know, the connection between, we'll get into actually what a fermented food is, but the bacteria in our food, the bacteria in our soils, and bringing it into our bodies, this must be something that um, resonates with you. Exactly, because... You know, food is our medicine. We can take these little micro changes and make a huge difference in our health if we listen to our body and and see what's going on and go, how can I take care of that? And it's just the fermented foods are, our ancestor did, did this. It's been going on for thousands of years. They knew something intuitively that only since like around 2007, 2008, when they started mapping the gut microbiome, we have found out through science, but these 
ancient cultures knew intuitively to include these type of foods in their diets. And it just, the flavor that it brings to a meal, the um, pleasure there, the way that you can connect with the local community when you start fermenting your own foods and connect with the microbial community. There's just so many benefits to connecting with the food that we eat and making sure that the food that we eat nourishes our gut. And when we take care of our gut, we take care of our health. So it's just, there's always been this connection that the food I eat is important. And it was a process of preservation originally, wasn't it? I wonder if anyone ever knew that it was bringing health. Um, I think intuitively they knew it was important, but yes, it was, it's a method of preservation. And that's where um, some people today get caught up. They want to learn to ferment. And we're fortunate with cabbage that we can ferment it just about year round. But the idea, it's preservation. So it's where we pick that vegetable out of the garden and we're trying to preserve it. We're not running to the grocery store and trying to buy cucumbers in December and preserve those because we need the bacteria that live on those vegetables. And so when we pick that carrot out of the garden or some local farmer picked it and got it to the local market, it is teeming with bacteria. And that bacteria is responsible for preserving that food. So if we let that carrots sit in our produce drawer that was picked six months ago and try to preserve it through fermentation, we're not going to have the uh, good fortune that we would if we had done it when it was fresh picked. And so I think today... I'm very excited that fermentation is so popular. I'm excited that it's all on on every little website you can find now and everybody's teaching you how to ferment. But we have to remember when we're struggling with it and we're not getting the results we want, that it is a method of preservation. It is taking fresh picked produce and preserving them when they're in season so that we can eat them in the winter when we don't have those fresh picked vegetables, which you know today we can ship them all over the world. But it, yes, it is a method of preservation. Okay, so just going back to what you said about fresh picked vegetables, um, I preserve cabbage. I, I do kefir and sauerkraut or um, sourdough, which we're going to get into because they're kind of different animals. Um, do you wash your produce before you ferment it? No, I don't because, okay. and, you know, I'll, I'll peel my carrots, but I tend not to wash it because um, it's an extra step. But the bacteria, you're not going to wash all the bacteria off. They're nestled in the little cells in different layers. So I don't feel a need to wash if it's nice and clean and fresh. But I'm also not worried about washing it to wash away the bacteria either. Oh, so you could go either way. Yeah, you could go either way. And it's kind of a I look at what I'm working with. I am not um, a clean freak. So it's part of my personality that I'm not going to scrub everything that I'm working with. But um, yes, you don't need to wash the produce. But if you do, you're not going to wash away all the bacteria. Can you ferment frozen vegetables or vegetables that have been cooked? Um, Good question. So um, the bacteria are alive. And they don't like the heat. So when we heat something up over like about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 106, we're going to kill off the beneficial bacteria. And so when you buy sauerkraut at the store that's in a can down the middle of an aisle or in a jar that's been sealed, most likely that sauerkraut has been heat pasteurized. So they make the sauerkraut and then in order to ship it across the continent to anywhere in the world, They want to keep it heat stable so they don't have to refrigerate it during shipping. 
And so during that process of pasteurization, they're killing off the beneficial bacteria. So these ancient cultures that got the benefits of fermented foods, they were not cooking their sauerkraut because that would have killed off the bacteria and they would not get the benefits of the bacteria for their gut health and their overall health. So you cannot cook, you, you can cook your sauerkraut, you'll still get the benefit of the fiber, but you're not going to get the benefit of the enzymes and the bacteria. Freezing does not kill off the bacteria, it just puts them to sleep. And so technically you could ferment something that has been frozen. When I make my yogurts or when I um, kefir, et cetera, I'll freeze those cultures so that I can use them later and they mm. perform just fine but you're looking at texture changes. Okay. I'm going to ask a a very, um, this is really directed for my benefit. Um, I am going away now. Can I put my um, kefir um, grains in the freezer? And then. Yes, you can. Interesting. So, So fermentation, you have to look at fermentation is always happening. And when we take a fermented food, it's the temperature that that ferment is at, that's going to determine how rapidly things are happening. And so when we are fermenting in the kitchen around room temperature, it's a nice, even steady, the bacteria are happening. I'm talking mainly vegetable ferments. Some dairies need a little bit more temperature or lower temperature, but generally we're talking room temperature. Bacteria are very happy. They love it. If we have a heat wave come in and that kitchen gets hot, we're up into maybe the 90s in our kitchen or 80s, high 80s, those bacteria just like us are tired and they stop working and maybe the fermentation stages don't unfold as we would like them. We aren't going to get the best ferment that we have. When we finish making our fermented vegetables or sauerkraut and move it into the refrigerator, fermentation is still happening, but at a very, very slow level. So technically you can make these ferments and they keep well for a year. They can keep forever, but you know, Ideally, you're keeping something for about a year until the next crop comes in. Mm -hmm. So they're still fermenting in the refrigerator, though very, very slowly. When we move it into the freezer, to me, I haven't looked into it, but you would halt fermentation because it is so cold in there. Mm -hmm. When we bring it back out of the freezer, it warms up and the fermentation can progress. When we bring our ferment back out of the refrigerator, if we left it out on the kitchen counter um, for, for days, it would warm back up and fermentation would then progress. So that's very good to know because, you know, um, fermenting and when we get into the, the sourdough starter and the cultures and things like that, that's an act of love because you have to keep up with those and feeding them (laughs) constantly, constantly. Yes. It's like a, what do they call those, um, those pets that the kids used to have that if you don't, feed them and take care of them, they die. Yes, the, exactly. Yeah, that's what like these are. So like, I literally am going away and I'm panicking because <laughs> I've had these for years. I think, what can I do with these starters? Anyways, that's just my issue. Now, one of the things that's not often brought up when we're talking about fermenting and sticking your hand, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with sauerkraut for the moment, sticking your hands into the sauerkraut and, you know, maybe quickly go over how to actually make the sauerkraut is you, you got the, the bacteria from your house. You got the bacteria from your hands that are going into this, this is all very good for your family, right? We have a, yes. a kind of a signature in our house, a signature um, with within the people that live there. And, you know, this is not a, a spoken aspect. It's great if you're buying fermented foods and you don't have time to make them, but there's an added benefit of touching the foods yourself and adding good bacteria to that. Um, do you, does anyone ever ask you about that? Or is that something that you bring up when you're teaching? 
Um, not specifically, but it's a real curious, fun question in a way that we can look at things as we're, we all work together. The bacteria are part of our lives. You know, they're finding how the gut microbiome in your armpit is different than the gut microbiome on your fingertips, et cetera. And I think your personality comes into the process too. It's very difficult for some people not to bleach bomb everything and feel they need to sterilize their jars because they're used to the canning process or that they're just used to that's how we work in the kitchen. And so, yes, it is if I ferment in my kitchen with my family there, and then I go across the U.S. and ferment with a, another group of people in their house, there's going to be nuances and differences to that final product product mm-hmm. because it's not it's not like a batch of cookies where you can run to the store anytime you want and buy your butter, your sugar, your eggs, and mix it all together. And other than say oven temperature and humidity in your house, those cookies are going to be the same every time, no matter where I make them, et cetera, if I have the same ingredients. When you are working with making your sauerkraut and slicing up that cabbage, it's a whole new game. And it's a beautiful orchestration of of us working with the bacteria. And that's once you understand that those are our friends. We're working with them. It becomes this pleasurable community process of you're welcoming them into your world. You talk to them in your gut and want to take care of them and feed them. And uh, so, yes, it does matter. It is going to impact. And that's why if you're working with cabbage fresh out of the garden or that's, you know, cabbage does store well, so you can get away with making it, you know, throughout the year almost. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're working with those bacteria and it depends on, uh, you know, the, that local cabbage is going to perform differently than cabbage shipped from across, you know, the U.S. Now, can you ferment anything like garlic, meat, nuts? Um, yes, you can ferment just about anything as long as there's bacteria on it. Those bacteria are going to require a certain environment to work. So like if I make uh, yogurt, that's a different setup than, um, say, fermented vegetables, Um Yogurt is a little different because you are generally not always, you can do it both ways, but you are pasteurizing the milk. So you're killing off any bacteria that are in the milk. And then you're introducing a culture. You're bringing in, um, say, yogurt from a previous batch. And that's what's going to be in that milk to ferment. You can also do it with, you know, with a raw milk, but it's, it's a different beast. But um, so technically you can ferment anything. I haven't worked with meats. Um, I mainly work with vegetables and mm-hmm. do some dairy. Um, garlic ferments beautifully. Each vegetable is going to work differently. When we do fermented vegetables like pickles, those are generally, you know, when people think pickles, they think cucumbers and the pickle dill pickle slice, but you can ferment just about any vegetable. So you can have fermented carrot sticks. You can have, um, a mixture of jalapenos and carrots and onions and garlic. When you do sauerkraut, you're not adding a liquid to it. You're using salt to open up the cells to release the liquid. And that's going to create a brine in which you ferment. Fermentation is an anaerobic process, which means without air, which means we have to keep the vegetables below the brine. So that yeast and um, mold spores and things don't get in and change the fermentation process or contaminate it. And the bacteria that make fermentation happen would wither away and die off eventually in the air. They want to be in that brine without the air. 
Um, and so when you're fermenting, say, carrots or garlic, whatever, you can't create a brine. You have to pour a brine over it. So they're done a little bit differently, but still you're fermenting in a salty brine for the variety of different vegetables that you might want to ferment. Um, and just to that, because we're coming uh, coming to the end of this first segment, um, the difference between pickling and fermenting. Can you explain that? Oh, yeah. Excellent. So most of the pickles that you buy at the grocery store, we it's unfortunate that years ago, everything you bought was full of bacteria. I'm talking, you know, a hundred years ago or thousands of years ago, <laughs> it was all beneficial for our gut. It was all still alive. Those pickles that came out of the wooden barrel down the street in you know New York at, next to the deli, you ate those pickles. They were full, full of beneficial bacteria. You didn't know it. You were taking care of your gut. Now today, those are all killed off, et cetera. And, um, Today's pickles are made through a vinegar pickling process. So instead of pickling those in that big wooden barrel in a brine, in a salty brine, they're cooked in essence in a vinegar and the vinegar gives the tangy taste, but we're killing off the beneficial bacteria in the process. Through fermentation, the bacteria create lactic acid and we get the vinegar-like tang. And so using a hot pack of hot vinegar, whatever can give you that same tang, but it doesn't give you the same benefits. So you're losing out on the gut health benefits on these little micro food changes you can make that you incorporate into your diet that you don't know, but that pickle you have with your sandwich gives you beneficial bacteria. Those are all taken away when we look at the industrial food process. And so the modern day vinegar pickling is very different than the old wooden barrel pickling in terms of the beneficial bacteria. Got it. And one final question before we take our break. Um, and just because I want to tie it all in here, you talked about mold developing um, when air hits some of the product, the vegetables. If you are fermenting and you find mold on the top of your liquid, garbage? Um, you know, it's uh, our parents would not have thrown away the, that big barrel of sauerkraut down in the basement. They would take the top layer off. Mold okay. sores, spores grow on the surface. They might work their way down a little bit, but I've come across many during my fermentation experiments, I would get some mold on top of my ferments and I'd be spooting it out to dump into my compost. And once I got below the mold and away from that top layer, you came to the beautiful, flavorful, fragrant sauerkraut that you knew was good and I would stop and not throw it away. So okay. it's a personal preference. I feel perfectly comfortable with just scooping off the mold. And um, normally you should catch it quick enough that you can just spoon a few bits out of there. Um, and you typically should not be having molds. If you're getting mold on a regular basis, you want to troubleshoot and see why. But personally, I don't toss ferments unless it has this thick green purple blue mass that just gives me the heebie-jeebies. I might <laughs> toss that because it's gone too far. But uh, generally, you should be keeping an eye out and catch it before it goes that far. But I'm not one to toss um, moldy ferments. Perfect. When we come back, everybody, we're going to talk about the actual process of fermentation and maybe get some little recipes from Holly. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, 
Kathy Biasi. Welcome back to our show on fermentation with Holly Howe. Holly, I want to talk to you about the actual process. What is going on? We can use sauerkraut because I think of all the fermented foods, that's probably the one that people may be most familiar with. Um, what exactly is going on when you put the salt in, you start to you know, work with the, the cabbage? What process is taking place? You know, I, I like to look at it like magic. It is, still blows me away that we can take this cabbage and pack it in a jar. And a week to three weeks later, we have something that has turned cabbage into a superfood. So I really have to uh, honor the bacteria and just, it's magic. I um, Just as a little side note, decided to make another batch of my own sour cream. I had not done this in years. And so just a couple of days ago, I... Um, took some cream and added a table. I took a pint of cream, added a tablespoon of sour cream to it, mixed it up and left it on my counter for 24 hours. And it thickened and soured and turned to sour cream. And I was just blown away by this for someone who's been fermenting for 20 years to still be able to see the magic of what happens in that jar and how these ancient cultures were able to work with the bacteria to make these superfoods for themselves. So, um, it's a it's a magical process <laughs> to, to take that a step further. We start with cabbage that is growing in our garden. During that process, while that cabbage is growing, these lactobacillus, these lactic bacteria, lactobacillus mainly, there's lots of different strains of bacteria they're finding, but these bacteria latch onto the cabbage. They nestle in all the cabbage leaves. We pick that cabbage. It's teeming with bacteria. We bring it into our home or our home from the grocery store into our home. And what we do is we uh, slice it up very thin and mix it with salt. Uh, And it's only about a tablespoon, right? Per cabbage um, head? Generally, it's a tablespoon. If we're talking, um, let's just set the stage here that we're going to make a quart or liter jar of sauerkraut. Traditionally, we made sauerkraut in these large ceramic uh, um, pots that crocs and that's actually a better environment for the bacteria but we're all trying to learn this process because the larger room it's the bacteria work but it's simple fine easy and magical to work with a quart jar at home people have that and it's a great place to start so we'll just be talking a quart or liter jar of sauerkraut so yes a tablespoon of salt is mixed into that and we slice that cabbage just like you're making a batch of coleslaw it's really the same process. We slice cabbage. We might add some other flavoring in there, like some grated carrots, some chopped garlic or ginger to add flavor and pop to the final product. And we mix that salt in a tablespoon approximately. And as we mix that in with our hands and stir it around in the bowl, you'll see the strands of cabbage start to glisten. And what's happening is the salt is pulling out the water, the liquid out of the cabbage cells. And we need that liquid to create a brine. So through that process, this mass, this big bowl of sliced cabbage shrinks down because it's losing its water and it's shrinking down. And we then see a puddle of brine in the bottom of our bowl. And we take that and we pack that into the jar using our hand. It's okay. You know, I always cringe when I see a few videos online, the person are wearing gloves to uh, work with the bacteria to pack it into the jar. That just is counterintuitive. <laughs> but um, so we pack it into the jar. We press it back to, down until it's nice and solid packed in the jar. And you'll see brine 
rising above the surface of the packed cabbage. We want that brine. We need that brine because the bacteria that are in there, they are anaerobic bacteria, lactobacillus, to create lactic acid, but they are anaerobic, meaning they want to work in the brine, not in the air on the surface of the brine. And then we need to find a way to keep everything below the brine because during the fermentation process, gases are created by the bacteria and things can kind of heave and move up and out of the jar. So you use some type of weight in uh, traditional cultures. They would put in their big crock, they would put a plate down and then they put a heavy can or jug of water or something. So everything would stay below the brine. When I teach fermentation, I use either a little jar that we're going to hold down with the lid or we use a, another jar that fits inside there that I fill with water and cap. And that acts as a weight to hold everything below the brine. There's so lots you, of sorry, can I just interrupt? So you yeah. do not have to put a lid on the vessel that is holding the actual sauerkraut. You just need to maintain it below the level of the brine. Um, technically, yes. Ideally, you would be putting a lid on, but I'm I'm trying to keep this very simple for people and make it so they don't have to jump on Amazon and spend hours shopping and then yeah. come up with berries and not do this. The, the question about the lid, uh, sorry to interrupt you, is yeah. that you talked about these gases building up. Right. So if you put a lid on it, do you have to release the gases? Exactly. So okay. um, the brine is covering the packed sauerkraut and that's where the bacteria are, are in and below that brine so they're happy they're working when you don't put a lid on you can end up with surface molds and yeast you, that can happen even with a lid on because they were just there and they took over a little bit but um so we have packed that jar we can talk lid or not lid so if you if your weight is such that it sticks out of the jar and you can't put a lid on, you're going to be fine because everything is still below the brine. That's where the fermentation process is happening. Okay. If you have a weight of some device or something you have bought off the internet, et cetera, and you put the lid on, then those gases still need to escape. And that's during the first week when the bacteria are producing the lactic acid and creating carbon dioxide that needs to escape out of the jar. So you can do one of two things in that situation. You can loosen the lid or not put it on super tight, but just a tad loose so the gases can still make their way out of the jar. Or you can uh, release the gases on a daily basis, or, and this is only during the first week, or you can have some type of lid that has an airlock on it that lets the gases escape. Okay. And how long does it take, I guess, each, uh, maybe I, I'm wrong, does each vegetable have a certain time that it takes to ferment? Um, sauerkraut, uh, it will. how long it takes to ferment is going to depend on the temperature in your kitchen. Ideally, okay. you're working, you know, 68 degrees and fermentation in a small jar will happen a little bit quicker. But generally, most things I like to ferment them for a minimum of a week is the bare minimum. Ideally, you're fermenting closer to three weeks for sauerkraut because the different stages of fermentation and the buildup of lactic acid and the flavor profile, they do better to go through that all those stages. And so around 21 days is what one experiment showed that the beneficial bacteria, the probiotic, the growth in numbers kind of peaks at that 21-day stage. Um, sometimes during the summer when you're making your cucumber pickles, those can be a shorter ferment. You're in a warmer environment and they ferment a little bit more quickly. And that's around uh, a one to two week mark. But generally, 
two to three weeks for most vegetables that we're fermenting would be how long you're going to let them ferment. Okay. And you did mention something. I was actually going to introduce this. Probiotic is a word that I think just came up. You just said that what we're introducing into our system when we're fermenting foods are probiotics. So I'm I'm sure most of you are familiar with supplementation. Um, this is probiotic through food. So exactly. that's exactly. where the benefit to the gut is coming in. So we, I think you've laid a, a quite a solid foundation for how to the process of brining and, and different um, vegetables. Let's kind of spin off into other interesting areas where we're introducing a SCOBY or a kefir grain or a starter. Can you go into what that process is? Is it the same? Why do we need to feed these starters? This is a, a different type of animal. Yeah, exactly. And let me just finish up real quickly on the fermentation process of the vegetables and what's going on. So those bacteria are creating lactic acid, which I touched upon a little bit before. And that lactic acid is your preservative. So during that fermentation process, that lactic acid is dropping the pH to make these vegetables super, super safe. There's no, the pathogenic bacteria cannot grow in these preserved vegetables. That's the beauty of it. If you were to take um, green salad and you washed off all that spinach or whatever and thought it was super clean, there could be an E. coli, there could be pathogenic bacteria on there that your body could consume, probably not get sick because of our the, our gut and how it takes care of that. But with the beauty of fermentation is it's killing off all the beneficial bacteria it's creating the lactic acid. That's the preservative. And through that process, it's creating the probiotics, which is the benefit to the gut health. And sorry, it's, it's the, killing off the non-beneficial bacteria, right? Yeah. I'm yeah, sorry okay. if I, yeah. yeah. Okay. Killing off the pathogenic and creating mm-hmm. the beneficial bacteria, creating all the probiotics. And that lactic acid is where we're naturally getting that tang from. Mm-hmm. So those bacteria are creating a very safe environment. There's never been a case of um, people getting sick from fermented vegetables. It just can't happen because of that setup of what those bacteria do during the fermentation process. Excellent. Um, so on to the scobies and the grains yes. and, and the starters. So with, with the fermented vegetables, we're working with the naturally inherent bacteria there that are on the vegetables and ha- putting them to work for us. With, um, say, let's talk uh, yogurt, yogurt or, or kombucha. With kombucha, it is a sweetened tea that you are fermenting with a SCOBY and some culture from a previous batch. So if you were to make a batch of sweet, sweet tea and leave it on your counter, it's just going to mold and turn to yuck because there's that's what's going to happen to some, a sweet beverage sitting on your uh, countertop. And so we have to introduce the tea and the sugar did not come with any bacteria to have fermentation happen. We have to introduce bacteria into it. So most people by now have seen a jar of fermenting kombucha. There's a white mass on the top of it. That's called a SCOBY, which is a symbiotic collection of bacteria and yeast. We have to introduce the bacteria into the cooled and sweetened tea so that we can create kombucha. And so they're in that SCOBY we put in our jar of uh, kombucha that's fermenting. 
And what we also do is to help along the process, we add in some kombucha from a previous batch. So that kombucha you're drinking is full of beneficial bacteria, the same bacteria that can make you another batch of kombucha. And so that gets poured into the tea and we put the scoby in there that tends to kind of float on the top. And then that starts the fermentation process. With vegetables, the fermentation process started the minute we started slicing up that cabbage and throwing it into the bowl because the bacteria already started to go to work. So with the kombucha, they're not going to work until we actually pour the bacteria in there. Then those bacteria, they love sugar, they love carbohydrates. So instead of eating the uh, sugar in the cabbage, they're eating the sugar in the sweetened tea. People can kind of, um, especially if you're on a low carb or paleo diet, sometimes they don't want to eat some of these ferments because of the high sugar, but the sugar has been consumed by the bacteria. That's their food. And so they eat the sugar and they eat the sugar. They're creating the uh, beneficial bacteria. They're creating whatever is created during the kombucha process to turn it into kombucha. Kombucha, when we talked sauerkraut, we talked anaerobic without air. Those bacteria wanted to be below the brine. With kombucha, it's aerobic. They're relying upon the bacteria that we poured into the jar and the scoby we placed in there. They're also relying upon what's in the air as part of that fermentation process and that the bacteria that make kombucha, they're aerobic. They don't want to be smothered. They're in that process and you know working around. So when you make kombucha, you're not putting sealing it and putting on a tight lid during the fermentation process, leaving it open to breathe and for the gases to escape. When you flavor that kombucha, you might bottle it up and seal it. And then you want to keep the carbon dioxide, those bubbles in there. But during the fermentation process, it's aerobic. You're leaving it open to the air. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And the same process really is uh, when we talk about a starter for sourdough, when we talk about the kefir grains, same idea with the aerobic um, fermentation. Do you have a favorite fermented food, a sauerkraut, the go-to for you? (laughs) You (laughs) It's all over your website. I'm just wondering, but is it like a different one that's a little bit more intricate? Uh, um, Sauerkraut is my favorite just because I came to fermentation for the health benefits and for the gut health, and because these traditional cultures were healthy and they all consumed fermented foods. And I like sauerkraut for the ease at which you can learn to make it or you can buy it, and also how easy it is to incorporate it into my daily diet. Mm -hmm. I can just put it on the plate that I'm food I'm eating for dinner. I can put a fork full of it into my salad at lunchtime. It's just so simple and shifts the flavors and just makes life so easy. Um, Living in Canada and um, not having access to vegetables year-round, you know, fresh-picked vegetables, I've also added fermented vegetables to my diet, and so I like to kind of mix up um, a variety of of vegetables, chop them up and ferment them, and those are added to my salad or to my meals effortlessly and easily. Um, I also like to make fermented paste. We grow our own garlic and we actually make, most of that garlic is fermented into a garlic paste. So we run it with some salt through the Cuisinart and that gets fermented on my countertop for about a week. And that is so easy. When I saute greens, I can add that to the greens at the end and get my fermented food that way. 
So the ferments that I love are ones that are easy to incorporate into my diet. It's not like I'm having to make any effort at all. It's just the jars there in the fridge. I grab it, I add it. And so completely without thinking of it, I'm taking care of my gut health. And that's kind of the foods I turn to, to add as little micro habits to add into my daily routine that just like the traditional cultures, I'm taking care of my health on autopilot. You know, it's funny, uh, I've got a, a garden full of garlic I'm um, looking to pick and, you know, you've hit on some things that, oh, maybe I should try that. Um, and, you know, it's, it is such a neat, you have to get into the habit of fermenting. Uh, it is a little bit of a different taste that people may not be used to, but so, so beneficial to health. You offer online courses. Um, do you talk to people individually? Um, can you tell us about your website and where people can reach you? Yeah, excellent. So my my website is makesauerkraut.com, M-A-K-E-S-A-U-E-R-K-R-A-U-T. And it started out with that name because that's what I was doing. Everything was related to the sauerkraut and it's very heavy on sauerkraut. But then as I expanded and went into fermented vegetables, there's those recipes on there, et cetera. The, the website's very extensive with more tips and help than you know what to do with and recipes mm-hmm. on making um, sauerkraut and various fermented vegetables. Um, then I also have a book called uh, Mouthwatering Sauerkraut that is available on Amazon. And then I teach online courses. And it's through the online courses that we run monthly uh, Zoom calls where people can then talk directly with me and show pictures of their ferment and get help with what's going on or get some help on flavoring, et cetera. So I give people a variety of way to uh learn how to ferment, or even there's a article on there, how to buy your own sauerkraut to make sure the sauerkraut you buy is beneficial and full of good bacteria. So yeah, there's a variety of ways to get help and start adding this little step into your daily diet. You know, when I, uh, I have, there's certain things that have always blocked me that I'm afraid to try. One of them, one of the things that uh, I, I have dabbled in is is cooking artichokes. And I know <laughs> fermenting is sort of some people's, that's their thing, their hang up. But I promise you, once you get started, uh, once you get, it's it's really understanding the concept of what's going on. Um, and once you get started, it really just takes off. So I do encourage you to go to Holly's website and really, you know, make start with sauerkraut. That's where I started. And I guess that's where a lot of people start, Holly. Um, simple, and you'll be so thrilled with the results. And then plus that, it's adding to your health. I really thank you for joining us, Holly, clearing up a lot of things when it comes to fermentation, um, a complicated, uncomplicated subject. Um, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.